Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, our hearts, um, the Swiss pastor, John Calvin, once said our hearts are idol factories. So we have hearts that always desire, that are always working, always scheming, always trying to achieve something, and we will work hard in helpless ways apart from your grace. And so, Lord, help us work hard today in a helpful way, to work hard to put our flesh and our desires to death uh, as we hear the preached word, submitting ourselves to this text, uh, letting it poke us and provoke us and challenge us as it will so that we might have true change. We pray all this in your name. Amen. In 1982, Michael Jordan led the North Carolina Tar Heels to a national championship. And even if you're not a sports fan, I could talk to both Jonathan and Johnny up here who host annual anti-sports ball parties. Uh, What might have been the secret of success for that North Carolina team? You don't have to be a sports fan to know the secret of success. It was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was on their team. That's why they won. It seems obvious to us. However, Michael Jordan attributed that success to something else. Uh, When he entered the NBA, he began to play for the Chicago Bulls, and he put on a new uniform. But underneath his NBA shorts, he continued to wear his shorts from that national championship game. And you thought your teenagers were gross. He continued to do this. He assumed that since his shorts were successful that season, that there was something about those shorts that brought him success. They were key to it, and so he kept wearing them. And this idea of what brought him success shaped his life. In fact, urban legend has it that what led to that transformation from the short shorts of the 1970s to the longer shorts of the late 80s and 90s was that the NBA had to come up with a solution to cover Jordan's secret shorts. And so the shorts grew longer to cover this up. And I use this extreme example uh, to illustrate what we naturally do in our own lives. When we think something brings us success or salvation, it begins to have an effect on us. We begin to cater to that, to live out that reality in hopes of future success down the road. In the book of Luke, as I mentioned, we're in Luke 16, where all of these passages, all these teachings Jesus has given are connected, and he's talking about the impact of eternity, the way it shapes our love for others, the way we treat life here on earth. And because of that, last week, Jesus showed us that if money cannot save us, then we will be radically generous with our money. If money saves us, we're shaped by money, but if mercy saves us, we're shaped by mercy. We do not hoard money, but instead we live with it with a sense of generosity and stewardship in light of a kingdom that cannot be seen. And today's text begins with the Pharisees' response to that idea. And it's a response, if you paid attention to what was just read, and we'll look at it in a little bit, it's a response that many of us have if we don't believe the gospel really saves us. It's a response any of you might have to what, quote, unquote, Christian living looks like if you don't actually believe that the hope of the gospel saves us. In fact, in hearing how the good news of Jesus 
changes the lives of Christians might seem as silly to you as Michael Jordan wearing two pairs of shorts. But Jesus is going to show us today what is true for all of us, that all of us wrap our lives around what we think saves us. And what we'll see today, if what saved you is anything less than the gospel of grace, then it produces more slavery than salvation and more legalism than love. And that's our main point today. It's simply this, what you think saves you, shapes you. It's the entropy of our hearts. What you think saves you, shapes you. And Jesus is going to show us this shaping force through two contrasts and a case study today. First, he's going to show us God's affirmation versus man's affirmation. Then he's going to show us faith's power versus force's power. And lastly, we get this little odd verse where we see sex, love, and grace. So that's our way forward today. The German reformer Martin Luther once gave 10 commandments to aspiring preachers. Among those commandments were tips on the means and methods of preaching. But one of them is really relevant for us today, and it cuts to the chase of preparing us for a reality. He says, if you want to be a preacher of the gospel, then suffer yourself. Be prepared to be mocked and jeered by all. If you're going to be a preacher, therefore, to even be one who accepts what's being preached, suffer oneself to be mocked and jeered by all. Sometimes we think that if we can just believe the gospel rightly, apply the gospel rightly, say the gospel rightly, live out the gospel rightly, that everyone we encounter in life will then accept us rightly. They will accept us winsomely and eagerly. But notice how Jesus is being treated so far in the book of Luke. We're on the heels of Jesus preaching on generosity of all things. That's it, simply generosity. But we see the Pharisees' response in verse 14. If you open up your Bibles, in Luke 16, 14, it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Last week, we saw that from our belief, all of our actions flow. And here, the Pharisees mocked Jesus because of what they believed about Jesus. Because they were lovers of money, it shaped the way they treated Jesus externally. Christianity will never make sense of our actions until it first makes sense of our hearts. These people who loved money, whose affection was captivated by something else, acted in a specific way. And this is our first point today as Jesus shows us this first contrast speaking to these lovers of money. He talks about God's affirmation versus man's affirmation. God's affirmation versus man's affirmation. Perhaps you've heard uh, the phrase, seeing is believing. And that is the hope of the Pharisees. Because money was seen for the Jews, it was seen as a sign of God's pleasure. Money was an observable way for someone to look at someone and say, that person is loved by God. And so for the Pharisees, they needed to be seen in order to believe those things about themselves. If they could adorn themselves with all the trappings of money and appear to be rich and successful, they might believe themselves that they were doing right things, that everything was okay in their own heart between them and God. And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, right after seeing these men are lovers of money, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight 
of God. For the Pharisees, money was a means to get what they wanted. Money was a means to be seen as they wanted to be seen. They wrapped their lives around money to be seen as others so they would get the affirmation of others, that they were living right with God, that they had peace, that they were successful. Whatever idol it is you might have in your heart, we've got ways to do this in our own lives. This is why when you look at really expensive handbags by name brand designers, all they have are the logos of the designer plastered all over it. It's not visually stunning. It's it's just to say to people, I am this well off that I can afford this. We do it in other ways too. In fact, you could go down to the farmer's market on Saturdays and see the secret to the Missoula starter pack. You get a Patagonia fleece with your Subaru and either your Chacos or your Birkenstocks. And we see that and people dress like that as if, like, I think there's, there's per- perhaps a pit stop when you're coming up the interstate through Dillon where Californians can buy this. And they stop at the Patagonia outlet, they buy all these things, and they do that so that they could show to, to all of us, we belong here. Affirm me. And what's interesting to point out here is, is let's do some Bible study, is pay attention to the word Jesus uses in verse 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. This is, when the Bible does this, we need to pay attention because what it's doing is it's putting biblical categories, biblical vocabulary to your day-to-day life. To justify something is to get at the root of the biblical idea of justification. So what we're talking about here is not so far separate from what we read in Romans when Paul talks about justification by faith alone. Justifying something is to put something which was out of alignment into alignment. The Pharisees need to be seen in order to be justified. Our need to be seen, our desire to be justified assumes something. It assumes that apart from some sort of affirmation, some sort of justification of where we are or who we are, we will always feel out of sorts, out of place, condemned, irritated, and lost. That's what's behind this reality of justifying. It's this idea to be affirmed for what, where we are and, and who we are. And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't argue to them about their desire to be justified. But instead, he points out how their solution doesn't actually bring them the peace they want. Why? Well, he tells us there in the second half of verse 15. He says, because only God can see the heart. Only God can see the heart. Therefore, the justification of man, the affirmation of man, is always and only a superficial solution. It can't rightly affirm. It can't powerfully justify. It can never soothe our hearts. But you know what it can do? It can enslave our hearts. And the Bible tells us there's two reasons why we shouldn't live as if men can justify us, as if men can make up for what we think is wrong in our own hearts. And the first is that all of you are lousy judges of character. I am a lousy judge of character. In the book of 1 Samuel, we get a case study of this where Israel's asking for a king and they basically get presented over the course of the book two kings. One king looks like the king you'd want. He's strong, he's muscular, he's tall, he's got the thickest head of hair you could ever want to see. He's a warrior of all warriors and a man's man. The second was small, he's a younger brother, 
spent most of his time in the backwoods, hanging out with sheep, writing love songs. And the first king was much applauded by men. And he was a terrible king. And that was King Saul. The second king was a king who spent the large majority of his early uh, being anointed as king, his early life as king, running and trying to earn respect and earn acceptance from the people that he would rule. But he went on to be King David, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And why this distinction? Why this contrast? Well, God tells us in 1 Samuel 16, in the second part of verse 7, when he says this, he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, here's why this is not just doctrine, right? Here, here we see the doctrine of God's sovereignty, of God's omniscience. This isn't just a theological category that stays disconnected from our own lives because here's why we need this realization. Often more than anything, each of us, when we're honest, want the praise of man, the affirmation of man, the justification of man to fix some need or lack in our lives. But doesn't the newspaper tell us that the praise of man is meaningless and powerless to actually do anything? Think about most of the scandalous headlines you've perhaps read in the last week or month. It's the most praised politician who has the affair. It's the most cheered movie star who overdoses. It's the most lauded CEO who gets a Netflix special on embezzlement. They have been affirmed, they have been justified, and what did it fix? Nothing. Man's affirmation cannot justify you, and Jesus here tells us why. Because it cannot get your heart. Your problem is not with your actions, your problem is with your affections. And so what it does is it enslaves us. We're driven to this desire for justification and we turn to man to get it. And when we find out that it doesn't solve it right away, what does that do? My wife and I just watched a documentary about this uh, man who had like daddy issues growing up and his dad didn't affirm him. And you know what didn't happen? When he was young, this eight-year-old boy didn't receive the affirmation of his dad and he didn't say, you know what? Praise of man is worthless. I don't need this. I can go to Jesus and get all the affirmation I want. No, apart from grace, it makes us desperate for it. If it didn't work that time, I need more of it. I need to do it better. I need to find greater ways to get this affirmation. And we double down becoming more desperate for a need that can't fix us to actually fix us. We just came out of Pride Month. And what is our world screaming for? Justification. Make me right. Affirm me. You see, we're saying it's not enough to be tolerated. It's not enough for you to love me as an image bearer in need of redemption. You've got to celebrate me. Social historians have tracked kind of the two parts of the LGBT agenda since its early start in the, 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 the mid to late 20th century. And at that point, the primary talking point was what we did in private does not require you to do anything in day-to-day life. You can affirm this, you could give us rights to marriage because it doesn't actually affect you. But now we live to a point where they're seeing that same thing that started as benign has now become the most public uh, and aggressive ideology. 
Why is that? Because what you think saves you, shapes you. Affirmation was not enough. Legalization was not enough. Tolerance was not enough. Celebration was not enough. The color spectrum on the flag was not enough. There's more colors and more shapes. We're going to need a bigger flag. It was never enough. Now, it's really easy to sit here and point at an ideology that seems contrary to us, but let's not forget Jesus is not talking to LGBT people here. He's talking to those in the church. He's talking to you and me. This problem is not a they problem. It is an us problem. But it's here we learn the second reason why man's man's affirmation can't justify us. The first is because men are dumb. (laughs) The second is because our problem is big. Our problem is sin. Jesus says in verse 15, he says, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. We love, we exalt, and do abominable things which are first and foremost against God. That is why man's affirmation is ultimately powerless. Because our sins are not ultimately, they are secondarily, they're not ultimately against man. They're against God. Man's affirmation cannot fix our problem with God. And this is the beauty of what Jesus is saying here. He's actually saying, you should care about what others think. You should find your peace in justification and affirmation. But it's only in the sight of God that you will finally have the affirmation you've always wanted. When I work with people who are wrestling with, you know, uh, uh, with, with depression or with self-condemnation, their surface need is always that they need somebody in their life to move into their space and to tell them that they are okay. But man can't change you. Man's justification can't solve your problem. But what we can do is we can point people to the gospel where through faith all that is made wrong or all that is wrong in you is made right at the cross of Jesus Christ and there the God of the universe justifies you by faith and affirms you wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. That changes everything because it changes the heart. To come to faith in Jesus Christ is to be justified by Jesus in the sight of God himself. That changes us because it acknowledges the problem in our heart and it actually does something about it. It fixes our paranoia. It solves our slavery. We no longer pander to the superficial and always changing affirmation of man, but we cling to Jesus and we are shaped by what the cross says about us, not what the crowds say about us. We are, we just sing it. We take and are dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. That is our only affirmation. That is our only merit. Can you imagine the freedom? Have you experienced that freedom? Of knowing no matter what you come from, no matter what you've done, your problem was bigger than you've ever imagined. And that everything you've longed for in turning to your spouse or in turning to your sex partner or in turning to the world to affirm you, the longing is a good longing, but you've been turning to idols which are insignificant to fix the problem which is ultimately here in your heart. 
But here Jesus comes and he gives us peace with God through faith. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 1, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, think with me this morning. Whose justification matters most in your life? Kids, whose affirmation has the most profound effect in your life? We should care how we view one another. It's actually a, candidate or a qualification for elders. Elders have to be well thought of by outsiders. But whose affirmation has the primary shaping force on your life? Who has the ability to say something to you and, and have the force be that is actually true in your life and you live as if that were true? If it's anything less than the God who is set forth to save you in Jesus Christ, then you will end up enslaved, desperate, and burdened until the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see. So Jesus here in the first part shows us where we find this affirmation, but next he's going to show us how we have this affirmation. That is to say, okay, Tyler's here, Jesus is here telling us that we should get our affirmation not in the sight of men, but in the sight of God. But how do we know that that affirmation is true and it is real? And this is where Jesus shows us the second contrast. That's the source of our affirmation. This is where we see faith's power versus forces power. Speaking into the Pharisees, we read this in verse 16 through 17. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So Jesus here begins to talk about the law. That's the the Old Testament in itself, the law and the prophets. And he is pulling on it, the effects of how this is shaping the Pharisee's life. What you think saves you, shapes you. And he speaks of the law in two ways here, which seem contradictory. And this is why we need to to be faithful in our Bible study. He speaks of the law both as temporary, but then he speaks of the law as timeless. Did you notice that? He says it's temporary because the law and the prophets were until. (laughs) They were until what? Until John the Baptist came. And when he came, the gospel of the kingdom was preached. In other words, Jesus is saying there is a natural flow to God's revelation. God gave the law and the prophets and the writings intending for them to have its fullness in the preached message of Jesus Christ. All of that was a funnel pointing to all of God's promises for all of God's people in the hope of God's place to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. To read the Old Testament and not come to Jesus is to read the Old Testament wrong. But secondly... The law was timeless. It was timeless in terms of what it revealed about God and what it requires from us. The law holds up the immense holiness, the beauty, and the righteousness of God, where God says, be holy as I am holy. Now, some of us might bristle at that. We might bristle at this idea that God is holy and that we have an expectation to be holy like him. But remember, your hope in affirmation is only as good as the person giving that affirmation. It's only as helpful as that person is, to use another biblical category, holy and set apart. Let me give you an example. If my wife came to me and she said, Tyler, I want you to make us something special for dinner tonight. And I went to that special place called the freezer and I pulled out those special dino chicken nuggets and I threw them in my special air fryer and I presented them to my family 
my kids might say, blessed be the Lord. (laughs) You are a father who gives good gifts to those who ask. But it's funny because that affirmation means nothing compared to the loveliness of my wife. Our hope is in the holiness of the one who affirms us. That's what the whole law says. Your problem is so big that it can only be fixed by a God who is himself holy, infinite, lovely, and pure. But what the law did is it showed people how they were to act in light of a holy God. That is, it shared that we should be holy and we have fallen short. And so it gave commands to protect holiness, but it also made provisions. Those were sacrifices. Sacrifices that were made when people failed to live in such a right way. Sacrifices which atoned for the wrong that was done. In this way, the law condemned the Jews because it had written into it qualifications that proved that you cannot live right enough by God's standards. If you could live right enough, then there should be no sacrifices. If Israel could have saved themselves by their obedience, we don't need those feasts. But instead, the need for sacrifices assumed that they could not justify themselves by their work alone. Paul stretches this to those who did not live in the Old Testament, weren't reading this. He says that our own hearts reveal this standard of where we fail to to live up to a standard. Our conscience reminds us of our own weaknesses. In Romans 2, he says this. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So contrary to Disney, your heart doesn't free you, it enslaves you. (laughs) It points out you have a problem. How does it show up? It says they show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Have you ever had a conflicted conscience? Have you ever experienced a twinge of guilt? Have you ever looked at someone who is performing better than you in a certain place and felt that should be me, and therefore you excuse it by throwing rocks at that person? This exposes that we are not righteous. Life and the law reveal to our own hearts that we do not measure up. We have faults and fears that need justified, that need realigned, We need to be free from a sense of guilt in the negative, or perhaps we want to feel the presence of what is lacking in the positive. And we shape our whole lives towards that end. But the question is, how do you get into that kingdom? How do you have that peace? You see, for the Israelites, the Old Testament held up this hope where despite everything that was messy, despite the constant oppression by the nations, despite their wandering, there was a kingdom of God for them. There was a place where one day everything that opposed them, everything that could cause them harm was finally removed. Do you realize that when you daydream about what your affirmation brings, you're daydreaming about a kingdom? You're daydreaming about a place where everything that causes harm is finally removed. But how do you get that peace? And how do you not look like a fool who just wears shorts under his shorts? This is where Jesus gives us this contrast. Did you see it? Verse 16. He says, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Depending upon your Bible translations, it might translate that verse in a positive sense where everyone is urgently invited into it, but 
whether it's in the positive or the negative, it's undermining the Pharisees' um, right response. They're not responding properly. They're either not responding to the invitation or they're forcing their way in. But I do think the ESV translators are right in keeping this as a negative, saying everyone is forcing his way into it. Because remember, contextually, what we just looked at last week, the parable of the dishonest manager, we saw a man who tried to armbar his way into the kingdom, who tried to manipulate the odds to get peace. We've also seen that the Pharisees themselves are desirous to enter the kingdom of God. It was a few chapters ago where one of the Pharisees blurted out, blessed is the one who eats in the kingdom of God. But they tried to enter it by elaborate prayers in public, viewable acts of righteousness, and copious purity rituals and washings. The problem is not that we don't want the kingdom of God. The problem is we don't know how to get in. Our natural default to get into this hope is to get into the kingdom of God by force. Sometimes we try to force our way in by emphasizing our rights. Well, my parents were Christian, therefore I'm good. White and middle class, therefore I pass. Or maybe we use God's attributes against him. We say, aren't you a God of love? Let me in. But often, we try to force our way in by works. I can't tell you how many times when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and I'll go specifically to a passage that talks about justification by faith alone in Christ alone, and I'll say, this is great. What do you think it means to be a Christian? And they say, I just need to live a life that pleases God. I've got to not sin. Those are all great things. Those are all good things, things that the gospel actually produces in us, but those things do not get you entry into the kingdom. The kingdom cannot be taken by force. It can only be taken by faith. Do you notice that? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the good news of the kingdom of God is passive verb preached. Passive to you. And everyone forces his way into it. In other words, we cannot force our way in. We accept the priest's message to get in. We want to work, but the gospel is preached. We can't force our way into it. You can only faith your way into it. If you think you could do it by your power, even if you give this nice hat tip to Jesus, it won't work. It won't get at your heart. It won't bring you the peace you desire. Your life will be consumed by action and it will do nothing to actually soothe your affections. In the original story of Cinderella, uh, the prince is going looking for the girl who left the glass slipper. And whoever left the glass slipper has won the prince's affection and therefore she has won uh, entrance into the kingdom. And so he shows up at Cinderella's house and they lock Cinderella up in the, I don't know, attic dungeon, whatever they have. And in the Disney movie, it's this humorous scene where they're all like shoving their feet in. Um, But actually, in the original story, I think it better gets at the heart of what we do. Do you know what the stepsisters did? They began to cut off pieces of their feet in order to squeeze into the slipper. It didn't work and just left a bloody mess. What we think saves us, shapes us. If force saves you, force and fear will rule you. And the best it will produce is to show that they are never enough and you will exhaust, harm, and malign you and anyone else who tries to stop you. But instead, the message of the gospel is, you know the one who fits the slipper, and he's bringing you in with him. It is his merit. 
It is his ability to fulfill the law and keep it perfectly, which allows you to come in. That's how powerful faith is. Now, I don't know if this is, if you think this way, but this was powerful for me to, to think about. Oftentimes we think in the Old Testament, there is this perfect standard of what God had for people. And then we saw it didn't work. Humanity was broken. And we get to the New Testament where God's like, all right, well, the standard was here. Let's move the standard down here. And if you come in by Jesus, you could get in. Have you thought that? That maybe God just didn't become as holy or righteous as he used to be because no one was passing the bar. And so he's like, maybe it's too hard. Let's make the test easier. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel doesn't lower God's standards. It accelerates yours by the merit of Jesus. You get a perfection which was not yours. You are one to a holy God which we can never attain on our own. That's good news, brothers and sisters. That is better news than anything you can produce in your own life. That is better than anything I can affirm in you. And this is what James says in James 2, 5, where he says, Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. We can't force our way into the kingdom because the kingdom can only be taken by faith in Jesus Christ. When you assess what you're doing and why you're doing it, do you come to God first and foremost with the force of your works or the faith of Christ's? And it's here that Jesus concludes with this small case study to drive his point home. The standards of the law, if they're eternal, not one dot of it will be done away with. Then we will always and eternally be condemned apart from grace. And now in verse 18, he quotes this verse where he says this from the law. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And here's our final point this morning. This is the point of sex, love, and grace. And here Jesus combines the first two idols, the fear of man and legalism, and he leans into both of those when talking about a culture of divorce. In the book of Deuteronomy, we got to a page turn in my manuscript. That was, you guys have a future in synchronized page turning. Um, in Deuteronomy, Moses permitted divorce, uh, provided man went through the right legal process. And it actually was intended to cause a pause in, the, in it. And over the years, religious officials and Jewish religious officials specifically began to argue and debate over what the process looked like and what made divorce true and and permissible. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses gives an example of a man who sought to divorce his wife because, and this was the the word used, translated in English, he says, for something indecent in her. And the debate then raged, well, what qualified indecency? And there were some who sided with Jesus as Jesus did in Matthew 19, who described that indecency as something that was of gross sexual misconduct or adultery. But broadly speaking, the more popular group of people, or at least popular to hear, was a broad sense of indecency that included adultery, but also included things, this is no joke, things as menial as burning a meal, not making it taste good. So naturally, the culture of divorce in this day that Though it was debated, it was also rampant. Many pursued divorce. Many granted divorce. In fact, reading all Jesus says about it, it seemed that divorce was used as a sort of legal system of sexual promiscuity. You got tired of sleeping with one woman, you divorce her for some indecency, and you go take another. You notice every time Jesus talks about divorce, it assumes that there's another one right there waiting. On my way to church every day, I pass a sign right over here on third that says, divorce in a day. 
Some of us take more time reading Amazon reviews than we do divorcing our spouses. That's not a joke. Jesus takes this with utmost seriousness. And the people who did this, they did so with the blessing of the law. They justified themselves by the law. Now, the thrust of Jesus' teaching here is not to define divorce and remarriage, but I'm going to give just a couple comments here before we move on. Biblically speaking, there are three ways in which a marriage bond is legitimately dissolved, in which divorce may be permitted. Those three ways are death, gross sexual misconduct, the word is porneia, so it's broader than simply adultery, but it carries this this huge weight in the book of Matthew. And then uh, Paul gives an example of desertion in 1 Corinthians 7, where an unbelieving spouse no longer seeks to live with the Christian spouse. And so remarriage then, in any context, takes pastoral sensitivity, sobriety, and godly wisdom. Life is confusing. Sin is disorienting. Relationships as deep and as intimate as marriage are particularly painful when sin creeps in. But if you're someone who's in a circumstance where you're considering divorce or remarriage, or maybe you've remarried in a way that Jesus would just here call adulterous, please come talk to me. Talk to another elder. If it's easiest for you, reach out to your community group leader. These situations are full of gravity and of grace. There is both relief, but there is also repentance in this. And we need the help of others to navigate those well. I praise God that Jesus didn't give us a chapter on divorce because what we would do is we would all go to that and we would justify ourselves in whatever our circumstance was. But instead, he gave us what he desired and he called us to soberly get at our affections, to process obedience, and to be wise, humble, and gracious in all of it. But Jesus' larger point here, when we're reading it in context, is he's not, he didn't just forget, where, the, the disc didn't skip while Jesus was doing it. And all of a sudden, there's this weird quote with Deuteronomy in it. What he's doing is he's pointing out here that God has so designed marriage to be a lifelong relationship between a male husband and a female wife. And that outside of that specific circumstance, whatever sex happens always incurs the weight of sin. In fact, Jesus' teaching on this in Matthew 19 is so heavy-handed that it's Jesus' disciples who come and say, well, if that's what's true between a man and his wife, then it's better not to marry. In other words, Jesus' disciples say, if we can't just have sex with whomever we wish, why do it at all? What we think saves us, shapes us. It was true in Jesus' day, and it's true in our own day. If you want to step on people's toes, if you want sneers and jeers, if you want to sacrifice any social clout you have, start telling people who they can and can't have sex with. Jesus says this is so much more than physical in Matthew 5 when he says, when anyone looks lustfully at another, they have committed adultery in their heart. Some of you perhaps in here today just hearing what I've said about 
biblical remarriage or divorce, you might be ridiculing me in your own heart. You might be kicking against the goads of scripture. You might be wondering if this is actually for our good anyway. But to be worked up about this in such a way is to actually make Jesus's point. It's the very reason why he includes verse 18 in this passage. Jesus makes it clear that any sex outside of marriage is sin. And he's intentionally showing us how in this one area of the law, this one small area, none of us are able to be free from sin, either by association or participation. And he's doing all of this to show that we need grace. That you cannot do it by the law. You cannot do it by man's voice. You cannot do it by man's effort. You need grace. If I have called you a sinner in this text, as I have myself, then hear the preached message of the gospel. Come to Jesus and be justified. If this one area, if this one verse convicted all of us, what does the weight of God's infinite righteousness do to us but crush us? But here is the one who was crushed for us. Here is the one who is himself the righteousness of God that we get access to not by force, but by faith. He does not declare to you like fickle and limited men, you're good when you're not good. We know that doesn't actually suffice, right? When someone comes up and we feel guilty and convicted and they don't call us to do anything, they're like, don't worry about it, just keep going. In our hearts, we know it's not true. But when Jesus comes to us and says, through our faith and repentance, that you are good, we, brothers and sisters, are good. It is a recreation in our lives. Go read Genesis. After the completion of every day, what does God say? It was good, it was good, it was good, culminating with very good. It is only through Jesus Christ, who is the first fruit of a new creation, that any of us are recreated good. And it is God's delight to say so to those who don't deserve it, by giving them grace. We have participated, done, and desired sinful things. If our hope is in anything else, then we are doomed. So what do we do? We repent. We come to Jesus and find grace. Grace abounding. Grace that changes our affections. Grace that shapes our lives. You see, notice where this, verse began, where this section in verse 14 began and where it ended. These men were lovers of money, but they were not lovers of others. What you believe shapes how you act. They loved money, but they could not love their spouses. A culture of love, a culture of marriage cannot be sustained by anything less than a love of Jesus. What you think saves you, shapes you. If we've been affirmed, if we've been justified by our own works, then we will be justified to condemn others when their work fails, when they fail to meet a standard. The book we take our pre-marriage couples through It's written by John Henderson, and he says this. He says, living under the law in marriage makes us naturally gravitate toward divorce. Divorce offers a decisive way to deliver judgment and condemnation. 
there is no greater dart legalism has than divorce. There are instances, and it's actually why divorce was permitted and mediated in Deuteronomy. There, there are circumstances where divorce is for the protection of the one being sinned against. But for most of us, divorce is not protection of another. It is self-protection of our own priorities, our own comfort, and our own justification of sexual desires. And divorce fuels that legalism. But if we have been affirmed and justified not by our works, but by Jesus' work and his desire to give us grace, then we are shaped by it. Grace enables us to endure difficult times, sinful moments, and subpar performance because Jesus overlooked our performance and gave us his. If we are saved by performance, we are shaped by performance. But if we are saved by grace, we are shaped by grace. Only those who love Jesus love like Jesus. And guess what? It gets better and it gets worse. (laughs) Because when our lives look like Jesus, we look even more out of place to a world that is not Jesus. We look weird to the world. They will sneer at us. They will ridicule us. They will mock us. Our lives won't make sense to them. Two things Jesus is talking about in this, this Luke 16. He's talking primarily, he talks about sex and relationships, and then he talks about money. That's ubiquitous in Luke 16. And if we think mercy and grace save us, then our view of money and sex looks different. Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher, was quoted as mocking Christians. And he, he mocked them for, quote, their disdain for wealth and success, considering it irrational and foolish. If Jesus saves you, your use of wealth looks odd to the world. One early Christian historian spoke of another third century philosopher who said this. He said, Porphyry derides Christian insistence on charity or on chastity and celibacy, arguing that it goes against the natural order and the continuity of human life. If Jesus saves you, your use of sex looks odd to the world. The Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says this. He says, the gospel may be on behalf of man, but it is not from man. Praise God. (laughs) At least not in accordance to his wishes and thoughts. Therefore, it is always rejected and resisted by him when he is left to himself. But brothers and sisters, God has not left us to ourselves. He has sent us his son, who is the gospel, the affirmation of all that is preached in this text. He has opened our eyes to faith of what really saves us. That is Jesus Christ. That is the one who comes having committed adultery with another or in our heart. One who has been a slave to the justification of man, who has lived for the sight of one who cannot see the heart. And he said, I can take it. I will take all of your punishment and I will give you all of the affirmation. And to, be, to do that, to receive that, is to have our affections rendered anew. I want to leave you with a quote from the author James K.A. Smith that perfectly summarizes Jesus' critique of the Pharisees and his commendation to the disciples. He says this, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his. To want what God wants to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God.
brothers and sisters, if Jesus saves us, Jesus shapes us. Let us be a people who look like fools to the world because we've been saved by one who is not of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for you to rend our affections by first convicting us of what we think. What we think about the problem of sin and what we think about the provision of Jesus. Anything short of that fails to address the heart. Anything short of that fails to accept the preached message of the gospel. So Lord, free us. Loose our tongues both in worship and in evangelism. Lord, we thank you for all you've done for us in Jesus. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, may we take and eat knowing that Jesus talks about in the book of Mark that anything that comes into us is not what defiles us, but what defiles us is what comes out. But this one thing, this metaphorical taking Christ into our body, this one thing that could come into us is the one thing that saves us. And from that come an overflow of fruit and love and grace. Amen.